Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions about meditation practice and practical Buddhism. So the emphasis is on questions that have practical importance in your own practice. We're not we're not precisely interested in questions of theory or curiosity or philosophy. And so Chris is here today, I think. Jim will be around. Maybe edit to help organize, collect, and present questions. So you're welcome to start posting questions at any time. First 15 minutes will be silent meditation. It's giving people time to ask questions and giving us time to gather them and giving us a chance to clear our minds and cultivate the clarity that will allow us to approach the session with a clear and open mind. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to start, start answering questions.
Okay, we're back. Ready to answer questions. If you have more questions, you're welcome to continue posting them at this time. We'd ask that chat be closed to conversation. Only questions will be allowed. If you don't have any questions, you can just close your eyes, stay mindful. You have questions. When I begin to note sensations like anxious, anxious, or afraid, afraid, or any bodily sensations, I tend to react way more quickly before I could see those sensations clearly. Am I missing something here? Please advise. Um, so you m might have to understand seeing clearly a little bit differently. Uh, seeing seeing that they're changing, uh, seeing that the reactions arise without your control, and so on, is a part of seeing clearly that we're interested in. So you trying to see somehow see the experiences in a more clear way than that is perhaps misguided. They might be missing that. Um, it can be disturbing, the result of mindfulness meditation, not really what we expect. So realizing how chaotic and unpredictable and uncontrollable the mind is, is the part of seeing clearly that's really what one would expect. And noting isn't some magic thing that suddenly lets your mind clear up and not react to anything. The reactions are, of course, going to come because they're habitual, and mindfulness slowly helps you to change that habit. But it's a process involving understanding and clarity of mind. So I wouldn't worry about what's happening, just slowly going to learn about your habits and the stress they're causing you and let go of them as a result. That's going to happen by itself. How long should one stay with the uncomfortable feelings before returning to the stomach? And should one go back and forth between stomach and those feelings if they persist? So feelings aren't uncomfortable um, unless you're, it, it really depends what you're actually talking about. If you just mean pain, well, pain is just pain. But if something it makes you uncomfortable or causes discomfort, in, in other words, is something unwelcome or unenjoy, unenjoyed, disliked, then you'd have to note disliking, disliking. Uh, but for things that give rise to disliking or liking, those sorts of things, you really should stay with them until they go away, like pain, for example. You should not pain, pain until it goes away. After a long time, if they don't go away, like it's gotten to the point where it's clear they're just not going to go away and you're not no longer in danger of reacting to it, then you can just 
ignore them and go back to the rising and falling. But everything eventually does go away. And if it comes back, you just, of course, note it again. Why should we note calm, still, or quiet? If the defilements stop arising, why can't we abide in stillness, knowing it's impermanent, and not note it? This is very important to know what is or isn't the path. So you asking, talking about abiding in stillness is usually involving uh, identification of self, uh, clinging me and mine and that sort of thing. The reason why we know it is to cut off such is to... Mm, to prevent the arising of such uh, uh, identification. Diti mana tanha, these are the three things that noting is meant to cut off or prevent. Diti would be views, mana, conceit, and tanha, craving. Uh, defilements don't stop arising just because you're calm, still, or quiet. Uh, delusion, states of delusion in particular are always accompanied by neutral feelings. So you can absolutely be calm and still have delusion. That's the default state. Ignorance. If you want to create clarity, you need a artificial construct that we call meditation. This application of intention in one way or another. And mindfulness meditation, of course, is the application of mind for the cultivation of clarity. And the noting creates that clarity, the certainty. What is this? It is calm. If you don't like noting, then that's a good sign that you are attached to the state of calm, the state of enjoyment of the calm, or some liking. Of course, desire isn't always associated with a pleasurable feeling. It's quite often associated with a neutral feeling as well. So liking uh, can be very much a part of calm states, still states, quiet states, and quite often is. It's very, very easy to like these states and to not want to interrupt them with something artificial like noting. We just want the natural way of uh, me, mine, good Uh, knowing that it's impermanent is not a part of abiding in it. You're not going to understand impermanence. You may understand it intellectually. Yes, yes, I know this is going to go away, but that's not what is meant by seeing impermanence. You're never going to see the arising and ceasing of phenomena unless you have a sharp and clear mind that um, doesn't arise through simply abiding well, it can for some people, but you have to be pretty special to not actually apply any effort or any uh, meditation, meditative practice. Like there are cases where people are so ready, all they need is a little bit of guidance and suddenly everything becomes clear. So they don't actually, well, they don't need any sort of uh, lengthy practice, but those are like the, the, the chief disciples of the Buddha and those sorts of people. People in this day and age really need not just a little bit of actual practice.
If I can't feel a touch point, do I stay with the point until I feel something, or just note the lack of sensation and move on? Yeah, with the touch points, you just put your mind there. It's unpredictable what you're going to feel. You can't control sensation, the arising of sensations. But with your mind in that spot, there will sometimes be this sensation, sometimes that sensation. That doesn't matter. Once your mind is there, just say touching and move on. Can I note stepping right, stepping left, in rhythm with my breath? Or should I keep noting and breathing separate? So, no, you can, can I, I mean, you can do what you want. So phrasing it like that, I have to be a little bit tongue in cheek and say, of course, you can do whatever you want, but I know what you're really asking, but let's phrase this properly. Should I, you should note independent of anything that's not related to what you're noting. Um, and, and it's not even exactly the noting that you're referring to. You're asking, perhaps, implicitly you're asking, can I time my the movements of my foot with the breath? Um, and that would be a, maybe an even more interesting question. There's no absolutely no reason to do that, but... There's nothing particularly wrong with that. Uh, just entertaining this. It's I, the answer is no, of course. But um, see, because when you time your foot isn't precisely important. I guess what I could say to that part of it is, it should be when you're ready to move the foot, which has nothing to do with the breath. But if you were to suppose, cultivate a practice where you said, okay, as soon as I notice that my breath is going to rise my stomach is going to rise, then I would start moving my foot. And of course, the problem with that is you're at one object, the stomach, and then suddenly you're moving, you're, and instead of noting that object, you're moving to another object. But the real problem with timing it with the breath is not that. The real, time, the real problem is that that means that during the time that the foot is moving, your, your mind isn't with the foot, it's with the breath, or it's back and forth. And so you're not cultivating focus, you're cultivating distraction and some sort of, um, well, delusion, I think, would have more of a, an opportunity because of the lack of noting, unless you're going to note everything, but I don't see how that is helpful. So the short answer is no, it's unhelpful, it's problematic, it would never be a good idea, and practically speaking, anyone who tries this is is reasonably going to be unmindful and not focused on the actual movements. If you notice that you're doing that, then you're no longer um, being an objective observer and you're now trying to control, you're trying to synchronize. And that doesn't cultivate clarity, it just cultivates clinging or control and that sort of thing. It can often, and rhythm, the thing about rhythm, any kind of rhythm is, um, it, it relates to past and future, so it's associated with timing which is not present moment. So yes, the answer simply is no, you should never do that. You should note what you're noting, and it should be independent. If you notice that there's a rhythm with timing with something else, you just stop and note that. Knowing, you can say knowing, knowing or something. 
so 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 the the two that's an important point as well when i say no it means no don't do that intentionally but if you notice it happening then just note it and continue on and if you notice it again continue, note it again and so on We are visual creatures. I struggle to know when to note seeing, as it is a ubiquitous occurrence. You say we must stick to one object. How to mediate the commutation of objects? What is the general principle? I don't even know what that means. Um, I struggle to note seeing, when to note seeing. Well, note seeing when you see. Keep it simple. I, I I know I'm prob probably not doing justice to your question, but I think kind of on purpose because I think you should be a little simpler than than all of this. If all of this were wondering or doubting, you should just note thinking or doubting or so on. You'll you'll learn. You'll be fine. Just note seeing, seeing until it goes away. How does meditation help one to socialize better? Who said it helps you to socialize better? Um, that's not one of the goals of meditation. But um, to paraphrase and to kind of okay interpret this in one way is that how does it, how does meditation help you in social situations? Well, of course, there's less defilements, which which in worldly terms means less um, reactivity, less harmful emotions, more positive emotions, or more propensity towards positive emotions so the, the thing is it doesn't help you socialize better it doesn't really incline you towards socializing at all it makes you less likely to socialize you're much more likely to pick and choose who you socialize with when you and how often you socialize and be more inclined towards uh, solitude and the buddha was very highly praising of Solitude. How do we eradicate the misery and lack of abundance in this planet with the habit of meditation? Well, uh, planet the planet doesn't exist, and that's important because everybody's world is different. And so you're never going to fix this planet. It's not a thing that exists. But what people mean by such uh, terms is a communal experience, a shared experience. And... That's not really um, real, right? Everyone has their own experience. So if your question were this world, I would say, well, that is your world. And your world, if your world has misery in it or lack of abundance in it, then you can change those things. Um, and you can also solve the problems surrounding those things, which actually are two different things to some degree. Misery, of course, is is something to be eradicated. But lack of abundance isn't something, even in your own world, that's necessarily 
important to eradicate, right? Living with less, being able to live with very little. So rather than abundance, trying to live with with just what is necessary is a preferred goal than trying to cultivate abundance. But what you're talking about is things like starvation, I suppose, and and of course the real miseries of war and 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 famine, disease, uh, and of course all the mental anguish in the world. But you can't. But but those are all very personal problems, and you can only eradicate your own suffering and help those around you as an ex, a sort of an extension or a part even of your own eradication of your own suffering so that's important the world is n- the world itself is never going to be completely at peace or whether it is or isn't is really a, a, a meaningless question and pointless question because it's so far beyond anything we could even possibly even think about comprehending um the 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 observed general experience of the world if you were to quantify happiness and suffering is it gets better and worse over time but that's never again never really real what's real is people's individual very different experiences and so you can create a world by by being kind by being thoughtful by being considerate and of course most important by being mindful and by being wise you can cultivate happiness around you you can cultivate a happy world you can cultivate peace even in great austerity or or great depravity not depravity no did i get that wrong what's the two different words depravity i think i got it wrong not depraved but deprived you can be deprived, but not depraved. I'm confused about Buddhist morality. If pleasure is not inherently good, then would doing acts toward others that cause great pleasure, like giving gifts, be no more ethical than doing acts that cause pain? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, well, the the answer is no, because of the qualities of mind associated with the deeds. But you're onto something. The idea that it doesn't re- it isn't really about the results. It's about the qualities of mind. There are certain qualities of mind that are wholesome, helpful, uh, and and as a result, lead to actions that are um, that that bring about pleasure for others, bring about happiness. Uh, but it's not the happiness or the pleasure that is that makes something good. It's the quality of the mind. So, you know, the, even the the speech or the deeds that you do are are not ever considered ethically charged in Buddhism. It's the state of mind. So. Uh, some of the best mind states don't involve other beings at all, of course, like mindfulness. Um, but other things like uh, renunciation, giving something up, it can often be even better than giving something to someone else. Often when we give to someone else, we we anticipate their happiness to make us happy, and we crave that that rush of 
pleasure. It's not doesn't make it a bad deed per se, but it does taint it. it makes it more worldly and less less actually helpful for us or less actually wholesome, beneficial. But uh, causing pain towards others purposefully, on the other hand, requires unwholesome states, and that's the point. You can do something with good with a pure mind, and it causes suffering unintentionally, right? So there's nothing. So the the con, the ethical nature of a of a mind state has nothing to do with the consequences per se. I mean, that, if you put it that way, because the actual mind state, any consequences that mind state brings about are going to be directly related. Wholesome mind states can't bring about suffering. Is really the point, and unwholesome mind states can't bring about directly can't directly bring about happiness. This, the mind states themselves. Ending the suffering of all sentient beings was the ultimate goal of the Buddha, right? However, it seems unfeasible. So, is taking a bodhisattva vow more or less beneficial to one's progress? No, that was never the goal of the Buddha. You probably are hearing the word bodhisattva is a Sanskrit word. We don't use that word. We use the same word, but we say bodhisattva. And why I bring that up is because, um, well, first of all, the concept of a bodhisattva—no, that's not true. The um, well, the word bodhisattva is Sanskrit, and that term bodhisattva vow is used in the Mahayana. And so, in those schools of Buddhism, there is a vow to end the suffering of all sentient beings. Now, we don't subscribe to that. We think that's kind of ridiculous, in fact. When a, uh, a bodhisattva, because that's not the ultimate goal of the Buddha, let, let's first be a little bit pedantic and say ending the suffering of all sentient beings was the ultimate goal of the bodhisattva. Because once he became a Buddha, um... I guess you could say he still had some goals in that regard, but okay, so let's just be clear. It wasn't the ever the ending the suffering of all sentient beings, even as a bodhisattva or after he became a Buddha. It was the purpose of becoming a, Bo a Buddha to teach people who had never heard the teachings, to, to be a leader of beings. But there was never a a um a specification of how many beings and in fact some buddhas don't lead don't, the enlightenment of some buddhas doesn't actually result in the enlightenment of many others at all it can often be a very small and short-lived sa uh, sasana our buddha taught for 45 years and many many people became enlightened and you could say are still realizing the truth of his teachings today so that's pretty impressive, but it would be delusional to actually think that you could uh, help all being uh, beings become free from suffering. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense because what about what would be the purpose of f further Buddhas in the future, right? If if any Buddha had done that already, there would be no need in the future. But it's just not a it's a ridiculous concept. It's it's so far ridiculous that it just doesn't make any sense to make that vow. So I think there's this idea for those who take that vow that they don't actually mean it. I've been told this actually by people who take it, that they don't actually mean it, it's just a determination. 
which again, I mean, if you don't mean it, why, why is it really as as proper as people say? That, that seems to make it less proper in my book, but that's um, that's my take on that. How do I practice mindfulness towards someone I see daily at work whose actions and words annoy me often? Right. So you don't practice mindfulness towards other people. You can actually, but that's only a kind of a mundane act. Um, so I'm going to kind of ignore, let, just to forget that I said that. It's a kind of a theoretical thing. There are some ways of practicing where you take another person as your object, like metta is a good example of that. But with um, proper mindfulness, you would take your own annoyance because the truth is actions do not annoy you. Um, you're, it's on you. The annoyance is on you. It's not on them. So you have to see it as just the arising of the reaction in you. And that's what you should be mindful of. You should be mindful not of people, but of experiences. So when you see some, someone, you say seeing, seeing. When you dislike seeing them, disliking. When they do something and you think about, because an action can't trigger disliking either. But you can see the action and then you process it in your mind and the thinking comes up. And then you dislike it. And the words, you process the words and then there's disliking because of that. There's no difference. This isn't a special situation. You just have to change your perspective. Instead of thinking of terms of people and even deeds or words, think in terms of experiences and your reactions to those experiences. Just try and see it clear, clear, clearly. And part of seeing clearly is seeing that you're not in charge. So asking this question is often a sign of a bit of clarity, you know, some amount of clarity that you're not in charge, realizing that you can't stop, and so you reach out for help. How do I stop? It's just not working. I can't, you know, make myself not react. That's clarity, seeing that you're not in charge, and that's the kind of thing that changes your perspective on your emotions and eventually frees you from the negative emotions. Do you have any tips on how to deal with stagnation due to contentment? I, I would I would try your best not to create narratives about stagnation. I would I guess I would say stagnation is a narrative. This is a word that I've started using to describe these kind of stories that we tell people. We we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves a story. And it, so it's an interpretation of your experience. It seems that narrative seems to encapsulate this idea. Contentment is very real, but stagnation is just part of a narrative. You tell yourself that you're stagnating and it's based on perceptions and your your interpretation of past and future and well past and present and your desires about the future. But uh, when you're content, that can be a real problem. The Buddha said if you want to be a great being, you have to be full of discontent. Uh, there's a certain kind of content that's important, of course, but then there's a certain kind of content that's problematic, that's harmful, and of course that's content with contentment with your attainments. I mean, it's not a death threat, a death sentence, or anything. I mean, it's not it's not terminal. It's not a horrible, horrible thing that's going to send you to hell. Not usually. Um, 
but it does um, prevent you from going further in your spiritual practice. And if you haven't gotten very far, then it, yeah, it can be scary and dangerous because you have this opportunity to become a great person and you're not taking it. Um, so I would note whatever is the contentment. I would often look for more than just the contentment. There can be a aversion towards the effort involved in meditation practice. Uh, usually things that require effort cult give rise to aversion over time, and that's not necessary. You don't have to hate meditation and do it biting your, what is it, uh, clenching your teeth or something like that. You just have to note the disliking and the aversion towards it. That's often a part of, not a part, but it's associated with contentment, what we call contentment. What did the Buddha say about dealing with relationships with women in your life? Well, there's nothing special about dealing with women as opposed to men, so I assume you're not a woman talking about dealing with things that are not like you. Um, you know what he said, he said for male monks, he said, about, Ananda asked this sort of question for monks, and he said, don't see them. <laughs> don't even see them. Because of course it's a it's a major issue for heterosexual beings that to to see the opposite gender opposite sex is is cause for the arising of lust. And, the, and Ananda said, "Well, what if we have to see them?" He said, "Well, then don't talk to them." And Ananda said, "Well, then what if we and what if we have to talk to them?" And he said, "Well, then just be very mindful. Be cultivate sati." So that's as good advice as any, uh, but for people who are not monastics, such advice is not reasonable, and it's not something the Buddha would give to non-monastics. I don't think there's anything special. Uh, I mean, the, the only thing that may, it makes me think of is towards uh, ro romantic partners. Maybe romantic isn't the right word, spouses. Buddha did give advice regarding spouses in the Sigalavada Sutta. Gave lots of advice for lay people on how to deal with people that they have relationships with. That sort of thing is pretty common sense. It's about being considerate and fair and acting appropriately. There's nothing really that special. do we make effective decisions with mindfulness? Do we note how we feel, or do we assess pros and cons, or both? Should I base it on my current state of mind and information, or think about the future? I mean... How do you make effective decisions? You learn. I mean, there, there's so much. It's just such a hard question because there's so many variables. There isn't really an answer for 
for decision making. Decision making is a is a um, situational thing. Some some decisions involve uh, future considerations. Some involve past considerations. Some don't require either, or some require both. Uh, some may require the assessment of pros and cons, but none of this is related to the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness will help you uh, see what is what considerations are necessary for the given decision. Um, it will help you to see the um, situational, no, the the worldly nature of most decision making, meaning how how the inconsequential nature of most decision making, that decisions aren't usually nearly as important as we make them out to be. Of course, some are understandably more important than others, but they're usually not as important as we like to make them out to be and but you know stress over and get upset about. That's usually, I mean, that's of course never warranted. And we free ourselves from that by realizing that the decisions don't all have any, don't have as huge an impact as we might think. In fact, the quality of our mind often is far more important than, than the decision. So instead of obsessing over which, which choice we make, focus more on, on mindfulness. If you don't have an answer on which choice to make, then you really don't have to make it until it forces your hand. That's that's probably a good rule of thumb, is that uh, if a decision, it's not being forced. If your hand isn't being forced, then, then, then don't worry about making decisions. And through the cultivation of mindfulness, you'll generally get a sense that, right, this is the proper time to make a decision about that. And you do the best you can and you learn over in life it was nothing directly to do with mindfulness you just become better at understanding the complex um, constituents of your contrived worldly life when having no time i worry and I am restless and angry throughout the day about doing two hours a day of formal meditation. I know it's about moments, not hours, but that's not solving the problem. What should I do? Well, two hours a day is, is a little bit um, challenging for many people, and it's not something I would recommend unless you have the time. This is a requirement at the end of our at-home course. But I tell you that at the beginning of the course, and hopefully we have that on our information. And that's um, that's something you have to consider whether you are actually in a position where you can take two hours. I would say most people can, though it might be challenging. But in some situations, it's just not proper to expect to be able to complete the at-home course because you're just not able to get up to two hours. I mean, that's all that is. As far as um, determining that you should do two hours yeah if that's just causing you stress and anger and you're not able to do it i mean it's a lesson in letting go of expectations and uh, letting go of reactions to uh, unmet expectations 
So seeing how you react to things is valuable. And not worry, restless, angry. Just another more things for you to note. So there's no problem per se. If the problem, if it's a problem of not being able to finish the atom course, you just have to either well you're able either able to finish or, or you're not and if you're not able to do the requirement if that's what this is that you're doing the at-home course then well you may just not be able to finish it right now either that or you are uh, procrastinating or that sort of thing wasting time on other things that are unnecessary i mean that can happen so still the worry restlessness anger and that sort of thing those are just those are unrelated those are those are unnecessary unwarranted they're unhelpful, and so seeing that is valuable, and slowly letting go of them as a result of seeing how harmful those things are. Is mindful meditation enough to cultivate compassion and metta? Yeah, the Buddha specifically said that the practice of mindfulness makes it easier to cultivate compassion and metta. So... um I don't know about the word enough, but I mean, what else would could you need? What else would? Um, there's nothing really. So, so it's not quite about being enough. Um, mindfulness is mindfulness meditation makes uh, gives you the capacity to cultivate compassion and metta uninhibited, because of course you would be inhibited by lack of mindfulness by the defilements and so on so there's nothing else you need to do you don't need mindfulness to cultivate metta but it or or compassion but it sure makes it a lot easier it comes more much more naturally if you're truly mindful but but i i wanted to say that it doesn't mean that just because you practice mindfulness meditation that you're going to cultivate karuna and metta and you have to actually go out and do the cultivation. So it's enough to prepare you to cultivate if you choose to cultivate it, which you should. Um, well, it's beneficial too. At least from time to time, there are things that I think we all should engage in. Often, I am aware of multiple things happening in rapid succession and unable to note everything. Would attempting to do so be a hindrance to mindfulness? As mindfulness increases, does this improve? If you're aware of multiple things in rapid succession, that's distraction. You should note distracted, distracted, or restless. Overwhelmed, if it's overwhelming. That's what you should note. And then you should try to find whatever's clearest and note that until it goes away. Once it's gone, try to go back to your main object, the stomach or the foot moving. What is the optimal duration and frequency of meditation? How does one figure it out? That depends completely on your situation. I mean, okay, so optimal is uh, always. So that would be maybe four hours of sleep at night and then the rest of the time besides meals and whatever else you have to do. One hour walking, one hour sitting. So unless you're in the odd position to be able to do that, 
it's going to very much depend on your situation. Be reasonable. Try and get a reasonable amount. As much as you can comfortably, that's what I'd like to try to say. Do all relationships eventually lead to suffering? No. I mean, it's a pretty vague question. Um, depends what you mean by suffering, because every arisen phenomena has the quality of dukkha, which means dissatisfaction. So if we don't that wouldn't probably be best translated as suffering but sometimes it is and if that's what you mean i mean technically uh, arisen things are not different in terms of their suffering their value they're all undis un unsatisfying but um usually when we use the word suffering in colloquial in ordinary language we mean actually um being in unhappiness, domanasa. Domanasa is the aversion. And so the only thing that leads to domanasa is aversion and, well, consequently delusion. So meaning if you have delusion, you'll still give rise to, to domanasa and aversion. It doesn't have anything to do with relationships. So you have to be a little clearer about what you mean by suffering so if that wasn't so clear what i answered it the, the first way uh everything is dukkha so unless you're talking about that or if you're talking about that then the answer is everything that arises is unsatisfying i mean there's not there's no happiness there's no true happiness you could find in it um so as long as you're clinging to something that's not that's going to just get in the way of your being uh, happy and if you're talking about actual anguish and and stress and unhappiness, then yes, nothing to do with relationships. That's just your reaction to experiences. How do we stay mindful in the present moment when the mind is racing with lots of thoughts? The thoughts are moments of anxiety, shame, guilt, and a depression. You can note, again, distracted or overwhelmed, but then you can just pick whichever one seems clear and note it. You'll get better at it over time. Don't try and catch everything. But seeing, see, the result of mindfulness is going to be these sorts of descriptions. The fact that you're able to see that that's happening is a result of mindfulness. And see that it's causing you stress and suffering. The reason you ask this sort of question usually is because you see the stress and the suffering in it. So your immediate reaction is, how do I fix it? How do I get rid of it? You have to redirect your attention to being more mindful of it. So rather than trying to stay mindful uh, as getting rid of these things, try and stay mindful as noting these things. Also, thoughts are not moments of anxiety, shame, guilt, and depression. Thoughts are one thing. Your reactions to them are another. Try and be able to separate. If it's just a thought, just not thinking. But the anxiety is, is something different.
They were coming to the end of the hour, and we've asked every question in the first tier. Great. Well, thank you all. I appreciate the questions as usual. Thank you, Chris, Jim, whoever else was helping out. I wish everyone a good week. May you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.